Good morning. Would you please stand with us? Let's all turn to page number 11 as we begin together this morning. Page number 11, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We'll sing all three verses together as we begin. Sing out this morning. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy. This morning, this time the choir will sing for you a song entitled, With God. Eternal hope be given to 
tell you, that'll make you want to charge hell with a squirt gun right there, amen. Well, we serve a great God, amen. I was uh, actually doing my Bible reading this morning in the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 32, and, and uh, God's telling Jeremiah to buy some uh, land and that the people are going to, once again, after captivity, they are going to inhabit the land. And of course, Jeremiah is questioning everything, and this was the response of God in verse 26 and 27. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Well, it just kind of goes right along with the song, amen. With God, all things are possible. Even when it comes to, you know, a little congregation of people there in Olathe, Kansas, praying for revival. With God, all things are possible, amen. So sure glad you're here this morning. We are starting our fall revival And uh, I thought we were going to go ahead and have invitation in Sunday school, Uh, but sure thankful for Brother Ted Alexander being here uh, with us. And so let's ask God to bless uh, the service this morning. I'm going to ask one of our deacons, Brother Alan Quinlan, if you'd stand for us this morning, brother, and uh, pray and just ask the blessings of God upon our services this morning. Yes. Amen. Just wanted to mention a couple of things. Of course, this Sunday night, there'll be no Bible study at 6 o'clock. So we're going to have one evening service at our normal time, which is 6.30 in the evening. And then Monday through Friday, 7 o'clock each night. Of course, tomorrow night, uh, there'll be a host of preachers here for the Midwest Baptist Preachers Meeting. And then, of course, Tuesday morning, that'll begin as well uh, at 9 o'clock. And so 9 o'clock to noon, be having some preaching and stuff like that. So I want to invite you to be a part of that. It'd be a blessing and to hear some preaching. But sure, looking forward uh, to just this week and God meeting with us. Amen. So let's all stand at this time. I'm going to have Brother Eric uh, Watson, our song leader, come and lead us in another, another congregation. Amen. As you're standing, let's turn to page number two together. Page number two, how great thou art. We serve a great God. Amen. Let's sing about it this morning. Page number two. <clears throat> oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to me. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to me. How great thou art, how great thou art. When through the woods and forests. I wonder and hear the 
Sing sweetly in the trees When I look down From lofty mountain grandeur And hear the roar And feel the gentle breeze Then sings my soul My Savior God to me How great Thou art How great Thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to me How great Thou art How great Thou art And when I think That God His Son not sparing Sent Him to die I scarce can take it in That on the cross My burden gladly bearing He bled and died To take away my sin Then sings my soul My Savior God to me How great Thou art How great Thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to me How great Thou art How great Thou art When Christ shall come With shout of acclamation And take me home What joy shall fill my heart Then I shall bow In humble adoration And there proclaim My God how great Thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to me How great Thou art How great Thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to me How great Thou art say amen this morning. My goodness, great singing. Page 298, page number 298. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Page 298. Lift it up on that first verse. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I will never forget. After I wandered in darkness away. Jesus, my Savior, I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the need of my heart. Shadows dispelling with joy, I am telling. He made all the darkness depart. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross the Savior made Fill my soul. Born of the Spirit with life from above, into God's family divine. Justified fully through Calvary's blood. Oh, what a man he 
are going to play. Let's get around and shake hands together this morning. Good to have each one of you here. Good to have some visiting with us today. We're glad you chose to be here with us. Page 298, if you lost the page, we're going to sing that last verse together. Now I have a hope. Aren't you thankful for that hope that we have in Jesus Christ this morning? If you know him as your Savior, let's sing it out together on that last verse. Now I have a hope that will surely endure after the passing of time. I have a future in heaven for sure. There in those mansions sublime. And it's because of that one. From his precious hand I receive Heaven came down and glory filled my soul When at the cross the Savior made me whole My sins were washed away And my night was turned to day Heaven came down and glory filled my soul I'd like to turn your attention to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. It says in verse 23, Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Show forth from day to day his salvation. Declare his glory among the heathen, his marvelous works among all nations. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. 
glory and honor are in his presence. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Brother Will Kennedy, would you pray for the offering this morning? Amen. You may be seated. tell you that it speaks to exactly what revival is about. Take my heart and let it be. Whatever you want, Lord. Thank you, Mrs. Waters. Beautiful job. Let's turn to page 186. Page 186. I am so thankful we don't serve a dead God this morning. Let's stand together. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. Page 186. Sing it out on that first verse. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Yeah. 
rejoice this morning, Christian. If he lives in your heart, you have something to rejoice about. Amen. Let's sing it out on that last. Rejoice, rejoice, oh Christian. Lift up your voice and sing. Eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ the King. The hope of all who seek Him. The help of all who find. None other is so loving, so good and kind. He lives, He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, He lives. Salvation to in your heart say amen this morning praise the lord great singing you may be seated this time we'll have a special from the ensemble the world. 
preach the cross, preach redemption to a lost and dying world. Lift your voice unashamed of the gospel of his name until all have heard. Preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word. So let's get right to it this morning. If you were here in Sunday school, well, you know what you're getting yourself into. If you weren't here in Sunday school, well, it's kind of like one of the men said coming down out of choir, buckle up. Amen. But sure thankful for Brother Alexander. and just He's just a dear man of God and a dear friend and sure thankful for him and thankful the Lord allowed him to be here with us this week. So Brother Ted, you come and preach the word, brother. I know that some of you have heard this passage preached often in reference to revival, and maybe this is, I'm just airing a pet peeve, as though this was a promise to us, and it, it bothers me so much that men preach out of context. Yes, <laughs> I'm a stickler for what we call proper hermeneutic, and that is that we use the rules that are intrinsic to the scriptures to interpret the book we employ them consistently from cover to cover and that's and when you do that by the way you always get a premillennial view pre-tribulational rapture all of those things and uh it of course dispensationalism bulwark of it is literalness but uh i say all that to say before i get too far afield a lot of times men will stand up and they'll preach this and one sunday they'll say we're in the last days and here's the earmarks of the last days, perilous times falling away, will I find faith, uh, apostasy, widespread. And then they say, there we go. Amen. All right, let me start back over. No, just kidding. Um, <clears throat> oh, I can't even remember what I said anyway, man. Um, but I say all that to say that this contextually was a promise to the nation of Israel, okay? He's talking about their land. It's not our land. America's not Israel. We're not British Israelis. Uh, we got to quit looking at ourselves as the focus of the whole universe, especially in reference to eschatology. We get all messed up. We do that. So all that aside, because there may be somebody that questions, he took that out of context, well, no. But the principles still apply, Okay. So you have to understand that also. I'm not trying to claim a Jewish promise, and I'm not saying if you do these things, revival will come, but I'm saying these principles still stand true. In other words, it's still good for us to humble ourselves. It's still good for us to pray. It's still good for us to seek His face. It's still good for us to turn from our wicked ways. And we can assume biblically, and I believe by, by rule of inference and, 
and just logic itself that if God promised a revival because of that, God can do a work in us. It's not going to stop the course of the world, but this church can still have revival. Amen? Uh, We're not going to stop the overall schematic. It's written in stone. God's going to bring to pass all of His goodwill. The Bible's clear about that. But this church still can right now have revival. Amen? And I believe that these principles are very helpful. But there's one principle that I really want to focus on today. And uh, it is a very anti-flesh principle. It is one that uh, you will realize right away in this meeting. We are not in self-esteem class 101, amen. Uh, We're not on a high horse. I I really don't care about your feelings. I honestly don't. If I care about your feelings, it's going to inhibit my ability to yield myself to God to say what I'm supposed to say. Uh, Now, I don't intentionally hurt feelings, but if the Word of God hurts your feelings, then you need to be hurt today. And, uh, well, don't turn, by the way, well, man, you're rubbing the cat the wrong way. Turn the cat around. That's what God wants you to do, amen? I'm not going to stop rubbing the cat the wrong way. You need to turn the cat around. You need to turn your life around. So I want to deal with one principle, though, out of this passage. And let's read it so those that may not be familiar with it. Uh, and let's go ahead and stand for this Sunday morning. And we'll, we'll look at this one verse of Scripture. And uh, maybe there are some that are not familiar with this. But there was a promise made in Second Chronicles chapter number 7 in verse number 14. And it goes like this. God said, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. You will note, by the way, that all three of the three out of four uh, things that are required here, you could either put them in the category of humility or you could put them in the category of prayer. You really can't separate them out from that. And so listen, three quarters of what it takes for God to, for the Jews to be able to get revival and and to really have the blessing of God again had to do with humility and prayer, okay? But I want to hone in on that a little bit even further than that in just a moment. He said, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I want to focus on the first part, which you would assume because it is the first one, it would be the most important one. And that all the others are the natural outflow of the first one, which is this, to humble yourself. To humble yourself. Now, by the way, incidentally, just as kind of a a real quick rabbit trail here, if you want roadblocks to revival, just reverse them. Don't humble yourself. Don't pray. Don't seek His face. Don't turn from your wicked ways. And you will inhibit. You will stop revival in your life, in your family, in the life of your church this week. And it does matter how right with God you are in reference to the blessing of God on the whole congregation. Now you can come and get blessed if somebody else is doing wrong, but you can quench the Spirit also. And you can cause problems even in your own family. By the way, if you hear preaching this morning and all the way home, you pick apart the preacher and pick apart the message, you don't think that's going to affect your children? You don't think if you're shrugging and inattentive that that's not going to somehow affect your children or, or your parents or your brothers sitting in the pew next to you? It does matter. But I want to deal with humbling ourselves today. And I want to couch that in a larger heading. And I hope I'm not being too confusing this morning. But I'm dealing today with the subject of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And I want to try to, I hate, and I hate to have you stand this long, but I hate to, to say this, but there's been preachers down through the years, and they've said things like this, and I, I guess I air all my pet peeves when I preach. I don't know why. But preachers get up and they say, I'm going to tell you something you never heard before. Always red flags go up when I hear that. 
And some great men, well-known men, have built ministries on that kind, of, uh, that kind of preaching. And it always bothers me and scares me. So I'm not going to say that. But I will say this. I want to try to give you a perspective of your Savior that maybe you don't even know. That you haven't even thought about. That is something that you just never really honed in on this one aspect. And that is the humility, and even to go beyond that, the absolute humiliation of Jesus Christ. And His willingness to not just be humble, but to absolutely sacrifice Himself to complete and utter humiliation. To do the will of the Father. And maybe you haven't looked at that. And I want to try to focus on that today. So you pray for me as I try to preach. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll ask God to help us. Father, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help me to be a faithful representative of your truth today. I pray, God, first the message would be biblical. And then, God, I pray, Lord, that it would be uh, eye-opening and helpful and convicting. And I pray, Father, you'd get all the glory from it. Again, we ask you one last time to bind devils and distractions away from this place and help everyone to listen and hang on every word that the Bible has to say today. God, please give me unction from on high that you might be seen and not me. Help me to decrease so that Jesus can increase today. And Father, I pray that you'd start a revival in our hearts today that will make an eternal lasting difference. Lord, if there be anybody here that's lost, I pray they would see Jesus Christ for who he really is. And we love you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. So often, society looks at Jesus the way that they want to, the way that Hollywood has portrayed him. He becomes a Santa Claus of sorts. It just kind of gives you the stuff that you want whenever you want it, right? He is going to bless you when you're in tragedy and help you, even though you disregard him mostly the rest of your life, and he really is kind of incidental to you. All of a sudden, everybody becomes a Christian. When the towers fell, everybody loved God for about two weeks, and then they went right back to their sin. And I want to say, my friend, that we need to look at Jesus the way the Bible actually presents him. And I feel like there's something that I know that I was missing for a long time that I just really didn't know. And you know, this is what saddens me is he's our Savior. He is our Lord. And he lives in my heart. And yet, I've talked to people after 40 years and I've preached on getting to know God and, and sanctification. And they'll come and they'll say, Preacher, it's sad because I don't know Jesus today any more than I do the, did the first day I got saved 45 years ago. That's disheartening. That's heartbreaking. So I want us to focus today on a little bit of a different angle, same wonderful Savior, amen? But I want to do that by dealing with pride. I think you'll see how it all comes together here in just a moment. But first of all, I want to introduce this idea. We have a pride problem. You have to own up to that today. That is point one this morning. You have to get that in your heart. You and I have a pride problem. The very fact that we sin denotes that we are prideful. We think we can do it our way. We do better and and repent. Then we go back to sin and it just keeps happening through our lives. And it's us taking the reins off of God, knowing better, wanting something other than what God wants for me, knowing that it's the best. I still think that I can do my own thing. We have a serious pride problem. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse number 10, the Bible said, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. And so there's wisdom if we're well-advised and understand the dangers of pride. But think about that. Any argument, any fight, any disagreement, any church split, any trouble you've ever had as a believer, the root of it is your pride all the time. And it takes two to tangle, folks. I've got news for you. If there's contention in your life, it is because there is a pride problem in your life. 
pride is destructive. We have a pride problem. And then let me read this to you very quickly. Stay where you're at. We're going to be going to some scripture together here in just a moment. But in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 and 19, the Bible said, Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall. So think of it. All the contentions in our life would cease if the pride would cease. And then listen, not only that, but destruction will come if we don't deal with our pride. Preacher and I were talking about somebody who did something horrendous as a believer and even a preacher recently. And the question that came up was, wow, uh, how could that have happened? That one actually really shocked me to see somebody be able to do that. But I just want to say, folks, that uh, that, per- that didn't happen overnight. There was issues in the heart that would cause somebody to act in a certain way under that type of pressure. And I want to say that's how pride is, you see. Whenever somebody leaves, no doubt, you can go back and, and you say, well, I just can't believe that happened. They had a pride problem for a very long time. You can see the rebellion and the statements and the attitude and the cutting of the eyes and, and the disrespect. And I want to say, folks, that pride has led a lot of people to destruction. So let me just say this. I don't want contention in my life. I don't want destruction in my path. So I'm going to have to deal with my pride. So we see the problem, but I also want you to see the command. And the command is this in James chapter 4.10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Now stop and think with me for just a second. Humble yourself. Okay, let me ask you a question. Don't answer verbally. How are you going to humble yourself? No, really. How are you going to humble yourself? You're commanded to. You don't want to be destroyed. All the fussing and fight and you don't want that and, and so many other things that pride brings. So we're commanded to humble ourselves. But I've asked that question of thousands of people and I rarely ever get any kind of a decent answer at all. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Again, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. We all want to be exalted by God and want God to be pleased with our lives. Okay, so all we have to do is humble ourselves. Well, that's easy. How are you going to humble yourself? Okay? It's kind of quiet in here. Amen? Well, I'm going to show you how you humble yourself. Amen? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I hope I got you thinking. Amen? You'll either think I'm a heretic or get blessed today. Amen? How do you humble yourselves? May I say that becoming humbled is a part of the sanctification process. It is something under the realm of what God alone can do. There must be the yieldedness of the heart. And in that sense, that's one of the reasons we're commanded to humble ourselves. We have to work together with God, but I can't make myself one bit humbler or one bit better, one bit taller in and of myself. So humbling of ourselves is yielding to what God wants to do to humble me. Let me explain it very simply. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 18. Now this verse, we could stay here forever, but I want to just try to just give you a few thoughts as we walk through word by word here. The Bible says, but we all. That's pretty self-explanatory, amen? Nobody's excluded. If you're here today, this is us, okay? He then says, with open face. Now what that means is that we lay the word of God open. There's nothing else in our mind. We block everything out. And we focus only on the Word of God. Now what do we do? All of us have an open face. We block everything out and focus on the Bible. Then he says, beholding as in a glass. 
So listen to me carefully. The glass is the mirror of the Word of God. We come to the Bible. It shows us what we are. No longer does man become the measuring stick or my sister or my brother or great Christian. Now Jesus is the measuring stick. And so we come to the mirror of the Word of God. God says, here's Jesus and here's you. That's what preaching and revival is all designed around. God's saying, here's the standard. Here's my son. Learn of him. Learn of his ways. And then the Holy Spirit will show you that you're not that and convict you to become like my son. He says, we all with open face beholding is in the glass. And what do we behold? The glory of the Lord. So when all of us come with nothing on our mind and we look into the mirror of the Word of God, God says, you will see the glory of the Lord. And indeed, He is there in every single page. Amen? I did a series on PowerPoint about a year and a half ago on the blood covenant, the doctrine of blood sacrifice. And you can start even with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can see the battle of the ages of the devil and Jesus. Even before the curse and the bruise your head and bruise your heel, there's a picture of Christ. Even there, Jesus is in creation for all things were made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. But you can follow that all the way through. And you know what you see on every page of the Bible when you really look into it? and you have open face with nothing on your mind, the Bible says we behold the glory of the Lord. We see Jesus for who He really is. That doesn't just mean a second advent kind of glory. It doesn't just mean His mount of transfiguration kind of glory or even the lesser walking on the water kind of glory. It just means the person and the presence and the attributes of Jesus. We see Jesus for who He really is, and He's glorious in all of His different aspects. The ones we know and teach and the ones we'll find out about when we get to heaven that no professor ever taught. He's glorious, and when we look into the Bible with nothing on our mind, we behold who Jesus really is. And as we do, watch this, we are changed into the same image. What you see is what you become. What you see is now the Holy Spirit is ministering and He's transforming us as we're looking into the Bible and what we're learning about Jesus. That's why we say you've got to read and read and read and memorize and meditate on the Bible because in here we see Jesus and the Holy Spirit makes us who we're seeing. I don't go out witnessing because I feel like it. I go out because I see that Jesus loves people. Amen? I'm not kind because I feel like it. I look at the life of Jesus and see His kindness and compassion upon the masses. And everything that I do, it's an emulation. It's an empowering of the Holy Spirit to be able to emulate my Savior, Jesus Christ. So as you look into the Bible, you're changing the same image from glory to glory. Here's my favorite. By the way, glory to glory, that's gradually, uh, service to service, Bible reading to Bible reading, day by day. That's why we talk about the progression of sanctification. God wants to change a little bit today and a little bit tomorrow and a little bit next week, a little bit next month. And the totality of it turns us into the image of Jesus Christ. So it's glory to glory. You never quit reading your Bible. You never quit going to church. You never quit having revival means You keep on seeking Him. And little bit by little bit, He changes us as we look into His Word to the image that we're seeing, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So us humbling ourselves is us yielding to this process. Us humbling because it is truly a work by the Spirit of the Lord. Amen? God has to change us as we look into His Word. Now here's what I would propose to you. We miss a lot about what we're seeing in the Bible. We need to understand the humility and the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you that we will become humble when we see the humility 
of Jesus. When we see that shine through, that aspect of his life, then the Holy Spirit takes that and he causes us to live humble lives. Pride is the normal course of man for every one of us. Walking in pride and bragging on ourselves and telling our stories and impressing those whom we want to impress and putting on a fair show in the flesh. And the Bible goes completely against that and says, look at my son, I will change you into his image, but you have to look at his humility. That's the part I think that a lot of us, and myself included, missed for many years. So in order to be like him... We must examine his humility. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want you to bear with me as I walk you very quickly this morning through the beginning of the earthly life of the Lord. By the way, he wasn't eternal man, contrary to some heretical preachers. He was eternal spirit who took flesh upon him when he came to this earth. Amen. He was eternal God. Boy, it's kind of quiet right there. You do believe that, right? A lot of, a lot of preachers pray Jesus was eternal man. No, he was not. Amen. He took upon him a robe of flesh that he might come and die on a cross for us. He is God. But I want to talk to you this morning about the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Jesus Christ is defined in textbook fashion by the self-humbling desires that Jesus had that caused him to leave the very glories of heaven and come down to a sin-cursed earth and then die on an old rugged cross for us. To be buried and then to rise from the dead. But this humiliation is what drove him to do this. His humiliation begins with his incarnation and it ends with his burial. In other words, my friend, from the very incarnation all the way to the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is putting on full display the absolute humility and humiliation of his son. His exaltation then begins with his resurrection and that continues throughout eternity. We won't look at that. I simply want to examine the humility and humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. May I say, first of all, as I have you turn to Philippians chapter number 2, that the humiliation began with His incarnation. It began with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter number 2, notice what your Bible says in verse 5. God said, let... By the way, this goes along with everything I just taught which means there's a yieldedness to the process, okay? So we must yield and let God do that which He already wants to do, and that is He wants to put the mind of His Son inside of us. But not just the mind of His Son. He puts an accent on this and reminds us, the humble mind of my Son. Let me work that in you. Let me put the humility that you've missed about your own Savior into your heart and life. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robber to be equal with God, watch this, but made himself of no reputation. Can I remind you, Jesus could have wrote the plan differently, made himself of any reputation he so well chose to do, but God said in my divine plan, he made himself not of any reputation, but rather of no reputation whatsoever. Not good, not great, but none. He wasn't concerned with that. And took upon him the form of a servant. Again, quick reminder, could God not have written that Jesus would have took the form of anything he so well chose? But yet, Jesus takes upon him the form of a servant. This is the mind God wants to put in us. We must let him. Notice further. He said, and was made in the likeness of men. Now, if you don't think that's humbling, we'll get to that in a moment. And being found in fashion as a man, then he further humbles himself beyond that. 
and became obedient even unto death. But not just any death, he even humbles himself beyond that. It was a specific, humiliating death of the cross of Calvary. And this is the mind that God says you have to allow him to work in you. And this is the part about Jesus that we so often miss. I remember when I first got saved, I thought, man, he's kind of like a genie. You rub his belly and a bunch of stuff comes out. You get everything you want. Yeah, I didn't understand, but as I begin to grow and learn, the Jesus of the Bible, the part that breaks me, the part that molds me and makes me more than anything is how humble he was. Because I know that I'm so full of pride. Even to this very morning, my biggest problem in my life is Ted Alexander. I insert myself. I have my own ideas, my own wishes, my own lusts, my own thoughts. And I get in my own way and I messed everything up in my life over and over and over. I have a pride problem. And if you're not willing to admit that this morning, you are not going to be helped this morning. First of all, think of it. Christ dwelt in the midst of sinful men. The blessing of the incarnation, of course, is not that God is blessed. The blessing of the incarnation is Matthew 1.23, God with us. It's that He who is so wonderful and magnificent and majestic would be with a bunch of hoodlums like us. Matthew 1.23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and she shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted, God with us. You see, the blessing of heaven will also be God with us. Not that he gets to be with us, but that we get to be with him. For my friend, for God to condescend all the way down to even be with us is a miracle of the ages. Look, if God had saved us and we had to get to heaven by walking on shards of glass a billion miles for uh, half of an eternity, look, my friend, it, it would still be a great blessing just to get to be with him but it is so humbling and humiliating that God would have to stoop down to become one of us to save us the Bible said in Revelation 21 verse 3 and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying behold the tabernacle of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God I liken it this way suppose this morning I said, we have a bus outside after the service. We have a couple of buses. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a little experimental field trip. And we're going to try to teach you a principle. Everybody got on the bus. Suppose we had a great gully washer, amen, this morning. And everybody was shedding tears. And God was working. And God was moving. Maybe somebody got saved. And we get on those buses. And we're going to drive downtown Kansas City. And we're all singing the songs of Zion. Man, everything is just so wonderful, man. Just that climate of being with other believers. And how awesome it is. The Holy Spirit is working. And we pull into a Marilyn Manson concert. And these filthy, gothic, dope-smoking heroin-using, God-cursing, defecating on the Bible, God-haters, church-haters, Bible-haters are in the parking lot with all of their nastiness and just spewing vile things at us. That doesn't scratch the surface of what Jesus went through. His holiness, His majesty, His awesomeness, His Shekinah glory is beyond our imaginations. How could we even begin to make a comparison? This illustration really is needful, but it's really absolutely, uh, uh, it, it can't even begin to touch what I'm talking about this morning. But then you go into this so-called concert, and there's Marilyn Manson tearing out pages of the King James Bible and defecating on them. And you're saying, how would you feel how would that grieve your spirit? And yet the Lord of glory came down amongst wicked, sinful men and dwelt on this earth. It is a million times far removed from the illustration I made. And yet maybe you can begin to understand his humiliation began with this very incarnation that he would be with us. 
Maybe you forgot who you are and the sins in your heart, the hidden secrets and sins. God knows all of them, and yet He came down to be among us. Let me move on very quickly and say that Christ was then born in humble Bethlehem. Now, what I want you to see is, as God is unfolding the plan for Christ to go to the cross and save us, He is painting this beautiful picture of the humiliation of Jesus Christ all the way through. And oftentimes, it is missed. Christ was born in humble Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, Bethlehem is called little among the thousands of Judah. Now, how many think God said, man, uh, I messed that up. I should have had him born in a big city. No. Uh, he, said, he said Christ was born among all the thousands of places in Judah where Christ could have been born. He was born to this little insignificant place and it was by the divine uh, choice of Almighty God. There's no mistakes here. I'm telling you the hand of Almighty God is painting a picture of who His Son is. And if you look at every single point in His life, the, the humility and humiliation oozes from Jesus. God says that's the mind you got to have. That's the mind you have to have, and especially this week if we want revival. Let me say then further that Christ was born in a humble stable. Guess God missed that one. Should have had him at the Hilton. Amen? This is all written by the hand of the eternal God that loves you. In Luke chapter number 2 and verse number 16, if you'll go over there just real quickly, Luke chapter number 2 verse 16. I'm reluctant to turn to too many texts this morning because we're going to be looking at a lot, but go to Luke if you would. And chapter number 2. I know that many of you know this passage of Scripture, but look very quickly to verse number 16. And the Bible said, And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, let me try to correct our thinking for just a minute. Historically, culturally, often the picture we have of the manger scene is far, far more glamorous than the actual reality of it. Our typical perspective includes a couple of cows... We'll put our nativity scenes out, you know. We, we got, you know, a, a wooden crib. And on the bottom it says, Made in China. Amen. We bought it at the local Walmart. Amen. So we got this nice wooden crib with some sweet smelling hay in there, all fresh from the farm and, and all of that. And freshly groomed shepherds, you know. We got the star over there. And then we got the three wise men who weren't even in the story. We throw them in there anyway because everybody else does it. Amen. But nothing could be further from the actual truth of how Jesus was born. And this is not by mistake. I'm telling you, you've got to see this picture God painted. And if we don't, we're missing a part of our Christianity. Cattle are rare in Palestine. So you might as well shoot the cow in your store. That's the first problem. Amen? And if you do that, I am not a vegan. I will eat every morsel of it. Amen? That's right. Amen? The wise men came two years later. We know that. So you might as well throw those out of your story. Amen? The star hovered over the house where the Christ child was found by the wise men, so there's no star either, amen? And the manger was most likely a stone feeding trough, according to historians, located in a stone cave, not a wooden stable. These caves were common throughout Palestine, and they were often used for housing sheep while they were lambing. The cave in which the Christ child was born was probably adjacent to the crowded Bethlehem Inn. It was customary for the innkeeper in Bible times not only to take care of the guests, but also to provide for the horse or the donkey which was ridden into the inn. Now listen to me very carefully. All of these people come in for the census. The other half says the taxation, so I'll just tell you they came for both. Amen. That makes everybody happy since that's an argument of the ages. But everybody comes in long distance. They're all riding on these animals. They're 
walking with animals beside them. And now all of these animals are in the parking garage across from the crowded Bethlehem Inn. They're inside of the cave. And guess what happens when animals walk all that way? Yes, it loosens up their bowels. And so inside of that cave, now you have dung laying everywhere. It is over-congested because the inn is over-congested. And this is the only place where Jesus can be born. There was no red carpet rolled out. And it's like, this is the best place you know you can get in town. No, this is the only place you can get in town. So rather than Jesus in some beautiful wooden stable made at the Jericho Mart with sweet-smelling hay in there, understand that he was born in a dark and a smelly cave in the midst of a bunch of dung. Well, I can picture Joseph trying to clear some of the dung away just so they can sit down and have the baby Jesus there in the midst of all of these smelly animals. A little bit different than what we've been taught. Well, man, why did God do that? That's what I'm trying to tell you this morning. He did that because He wants us to see who Jesus really is. So this me and mine, and I've got to be number one, and I'm going to climb ladders and step on everyone's heads, and all this attitude we've got, put it away from you because Jesus Christ is the King of humiliation. We cannot imagine the humiliation of that night. Mary and Joseph and the newborn Christ child spent there. The stench must have been unbearable. She is now nine months pregnant. She's hobbling on this animal. Can you ladies, are you getting seasick already? Nine months pregnant, hobbling on this animal. And then they get there and all of a sudden she has to go in and smell this horrible stench and have her little baby in the midst of all this. I'm going to say this is one of the most humbling scenes that you could ever imagine. And that's what bothers me that we destroy it with our little nativities. They crowd back in some dark cave. What condescension. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. May I move on and say the humiliation of Christ then continued in His early life. And what would we find as we move from His, uh, his incarnation and His birth and all of that and move forward uh, into His early life? We will find the same exact picture that God is painting in another chapter. Did you know that He was born the son of poor Jewish parents? Listen to me, Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, they said, Is not this the carpenter's son? Can I tell you that Christ knew poverty? We realize that back then carpenters would work with stone, sometimes wood, but they were not a doctor and a lawyer and an Indian chief. They're way down the bottom of the totem pole. He was born uh, to the, the son of poor Jewish parents. In Luke 2, verse 22 through 24, And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. <clears throat> Listen to me carefully. As it is written in the law, of the Lord, every male that opened at the womb should be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now wait a minute. What's that talking about? Let me give you the law that they were following when they did the sacrifice. And by the way, this was not a sacrifice made in, in, the, in the representation of Jesus because he had never sinned. This is a sacrifice in essence for the mother. Leviticus chapter 1 verse 7 and 8. This is the law for her that hath borne a male or female. And if she be not able to bring a lamb, why is she not able? They're impoverished. Wait a minute. Why didn't God put them to rich? That's what I'm trying to tell you. This is all by design. And as you begin to back up and look at the plan and say, wait a minute, I think God's trying to show me something here. You start realizing just how your pride stinks so bad. And just how you just keep messing up because it's all about you. 
And when it becomes about Him, maybe we'll have that power of God we preach about all the time. And that revival that is so elusive to us so many times. Listen, and the Bible goes on to say, she shall bring two turtles, that's turtle doves, or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering and the other for the sin offering. By comparing the passage in Luke with the one in Leviticus, we can see that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy. They had a very low income. This is, in essence, a poverty clause in the law that said the average normal person, which would be what we'd call middle income, they bring this. But the poor people, they they can bring this because they can't afford the other stuff. An average income family would offer a lamb. Poor families would bring turtle doves and pigeons. One bird offered for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. Again, it was offered on behalf of Mary, not Jesus Christ. He was raised by poor parents. Man, I just don't know why I can't have no money. Well, maybe you need to take a better look at your Savior and quit complaining. Jesus came setting the example. By the way, I don't know very many Baptists with money, amen? So just, just get over it, amen? The sooner you get over that, the better off you're going to be. Don't find your pleasure and joy in your possessions. That not, that's not what life consists of. Let me go further quickly. He was raised in Nazareth. Would we find anything in that? Well, the Bible seems to indicate, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, the town of Nazareth was, to say the least, not viewed very favorably, not in a favorable light. John 1.46, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Wow, now I wonder why God made that mistake. No, no, it wasn't a mistake. Jesus was born in the armpit of the Middle East. What are you talking about? They tell me, you know, uh, Florida City is the armpit of Florida, amen? <laughs> That's why when I went down there, I'm like, what are we getting ourselves into, amen? Would you imagine your pastor, we're here at the Preacher's Fellowship, and, uh, you know, maybe there's one pastor says to another, now where do you pastor at? And... <laughs> Nobnoster gets picked on a lot. Well, you use Nobnoster, amen? And, uh, and Brother Merrick says, Nobnoster. He says, oh, good night, man. What an armpit, man. Can anything good come out of Nobnoster? That's how people would respond when you talked about Nazareth. That's how they did respond. He's from where? You think that was by mistake? That God put Jesus in a place that was already looked down upon? Look, friend, God is showing us this is the biblical Jesus. Let me go further. He wasn't subject to human beings, His mother and His earthly father. The Lord of all glory, the Creator of all flesh. He is subject. Luke 2.51, He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But His mother kept all these sayings in her heart. So He came all the way down to become one of them. And then He puts Himself under His own creation. Let me go further. He was willingly subject to the limitations of a human body. The God who said, boom, made the stars also. Amen. And we sit there with telescopes and send rockets up and put up all kinds of Hubbles and all kinds of, trying to just barely look into what God has done just like that. And Jesus comes and he keeps all of his glory inside for 30 years of his life on this planet. Understand what, how... How humiliating that must have been. Because God could have fixed anything He wanted to fix. But my friend, there was a plan that was in place. And although Jesus Christ was God, He did not use His power, His divine power indiscriminately. When He did use His power, He used it for the benefit of others. But until He began His ministry, He used no miraculous power at all. John 2.11 indicates that the turning of the water into wine was the beginning of His miracles. 
Now there's some uninspired uh, ancient apocryphal writings and such that say that the child Jesus showed off by performing miracles and tricks for their benefit. One such writer says that Jesus was turning clay pigeons into real birds to frustrate his teachers. All that is gibberish. That's garbage. It comes from the same crowd that tells us your Old Testament is nothing more than Hebrew folklore and your New Testament is Greek mythology. I'm here to tell you, friend, that Jesus Christ kept all of the power that was in the manger, the power of the very universe and beyond, the Lord of the universe and everything beyond it. He kept all that inside until the marriage at Cain of Galilee. Let me go further and say the humiliation of Jesus Christ continued them throughout his earthly ministry. And what would we find when he starts his ministry? Would he become filled with pride like us? First of all, he suffered hunger and he suffered thirst. Now, that may not mean much to you, but and in Matthew chapter 4, you could turn there. I know some of you know these passages, but in Matthew 4, we find the temptation of Jesus where he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness and he's tempted of the devil there. The Bible said in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus led the spirit of the wilderness, he was tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterwards and hungered. Remember Jesus when he said, I am the bread of life? So, so, So wait a minute, what's this all about? Remember that Jesus that took a little basket? You know, we always make the old statement. The little boy came up and said, here's my basket. You don't have to ask it, amen. Took those fish, took that bread, multiplied it, fed thousands of people out of a little basket, amen. He's the one that feeds the sparrows every day as he testified himself. He's the one that feeds every one of us and even allows his food and his rain to fall on the just at the same exact time. And so Jesus is well capable of doing all of this and yet he chose in God's divine plan to suffer hunger down here. Why would God do that to the bread of life? Because, my friend, he was painting a picture for us as to who Jesus really is. Uh, understand this, he, he hungered thirst. Remember on the cross and there in, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse number 48, he said, I thirst while he was hanging. Wait a minute, wasn't this the water of life? And this is the one that told a woman at the well, if you drink the water I give you, there'll be you know, wells of water spring up in everlasting life. He said, you'll never thirst again if you partake of me. And he said, I thirst. Well, he didn't have to do that, you see. That's my point. But God is painting a picture of who your Savior really is. So like every day when God asks you to humble yourself and you keep fighting against it and struggle, just remember all that Jesus did every day that he was here and the example that he set. So if you're ready to quit on your marriage, you better get on your face before God today before it self-destructs. So if you children are rebellious against your parents and you look at all this LGBT garbage that's out there that's destroying our country and sending people to hell, you better fall on your face and repent before God before it takes you over. If you're hearing you say, I just don't care about these revivals. This costs the church too much money. I'm gonna tell you, 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 how can you put a price tag on a revival meeting? I'm not saying it's not about me or an offering or a plane ticket. We've got a God in heaven that has divine appointments for preachers to come and to preach meetings. Uh, Folks, you better humble yourself today. You say, Well, I'm already where I want to be. I'm not making any changes. Preachers have been trying to get me to do this or to quit that. Why don't you humble yourself and let God do what He wants this week? 
Some of you are willing to bog this whole revival down, grieve the Spirit of God, and not see God move because of pride. And Jesus said, I, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. The very God of the universe. And although he never met his own needs miraculously, he sure made sure that others would not hunger. At the same time he's hungering and thirsting, he is feeding other people and giving them the water of life. Let me hurry on and say this. He was then rejected by his own people. John 1.11 said, He came into his own and his own received him not. You think he knew that before he came? But he loved them. He loved them unto the end. And he still loves the Jew today, by the way. And, he still, and by the way, there still is a millennial kingdom to come. And every promise that were made by the Old Testament prophets, those are binding, unconditional covenants, and they will be fulfilled. And if you don't believe it, you haven't read the book of Romans. Because if we just had the Old Testament and didn't have the book of Romans, you might say, well, God seems to be done with the Jews because He hasn't dealt with them and they're in such apostasy. But then when you read Romans 11, He said, blindness in part has happened to Israel till the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled he's not done with them but his own people rejected him now rejection that's not a fun thing we had the experience of having four girls and a wife with long hair living in a bus amen that's a whole other tribulation i'll save that for another day but i remember they would go into new church almost every week or every other week and sometimes they came out as little kids and they'd say Hey, I met some new friends. You know, they're all bouncing up and down and everything. And da-da-da, they enjoyed Sunday school. Then, of course, you had the weird churches where they'd come out and say, What'd you learn today? We learned about going green today, Dad. And they asked us how we were going to go green. Mark that church off the calendar. Amen. <laughs> anyway. But there are times they came out weeping. Little girls. What's wrong, sweetie? What's wrong, honey? They wouldn't even talk to me. They, they were picking on her little sister, Bethany. Glory! Or whatever, or, or one kid pushed Joel down to the ground. Or what are you trying to say? You see, my friend, rejection—it hurts. And Jesus came and was rejected by his own. Well, that was just a mistake. They didn't notice. That's part of the plan. You see, God had all the—you know—the prophets prophesied of them coming back after they did reject him long before Jesus ever came. And so the whole plan includes that my son is going to be rejected while he's here on the planet. So before you think, well, I don't have any friends, I feel rejected. I'm sorry for that. And I want you to know this preacher loves you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your pastor loves you. His wife loves you in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can't ever sit around in the Molly Grub Club saying, man, I just don't have any friends and I just feel rejected. Remember that your Savior was rejected. I've been rejected. I have to humble myself and realize this is my lot in life. And I'm going to go on and serve Jesus Christ. But if anyone knows about rejection, it's him. He was absolutely humiliated to come and to lay down his life for people that he wept over up on top of that hill and looked down and said, Oh, Jerusalem, can you hear the cry of the very Son of God? And then they all reject him. Let me go further and say that he was often without suitable housing. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20, the Bible said, And Jesus saith unto them, The foxes have holes. You know, foxes had more than Jesus had. The birds of the air, they have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Where did Jesus stay when he was on this earth? Well, it seems that he stayed with different individuals. According to Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42, he possibly stayed with the disciples, different disciples at different times. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5 seems to indicate that most of the apostles were married. They would have had families and Jesus would have stayed there. Well, preacher, I'm just mad at God because we don't even own a house. 
Join the club with Jesus. Well, that's weird. Why didn't God have a pre-prepared place? Because he's still painting his picture for you. Do you see it yet? This is the Jesus I missed for years. It's not the Jesus of signs and wonders where Benny Hinn comes out, you know, like uh, Darth Vader swinging his jacket around and knocking people over. It's not this deal where when revival comes and the presence of Jesus comes, we all laughed and barked like dogs. If the presence of God comes down in this meeting, I promise you, you'll crawl to this altar and weep bitter tears over your sins against a thrice holy God. Jesus was often without suitable housing. He was blasphemed. Luke chapter 11 verse 15, But some of them said he casteth out devils through Beelzebub. The chief of the devils. Can you imagine ascribing the very miracles of the Son of Almighty God to the devil himself? Jesus Christ had to endure these horrible comments and slanders and lies against him repeatedly. Well, preacher, I'm quitting church. Why? Somebody said something bad about me. Oh, just one thing they said? Well, no, ten things. Oh, just ten? That's all? Well, I, only, I, I know they said twenty things. Well, yeah, what about if you knew the rest? It still don't compare to Jesus. Because Jesus didn't deserve any of it. You might deserve it. I don't know. I'm just telling you, it might be true. But when they slandered Jesus, none of it was true. Now, why would he do that? He's trying to show you how to endure. Trying to show you to humble yourself. He was made a little lower than the angels. Well, that's an interesting statement, is it not? Well, the angels can... You know, they could change, and Jesus chose not to, but they could change from, you know, this to that, and very quickly, and all of that, and they do have some miraculous power, but when He took on the human body, yes, He was 100% God, but He, but he, he restricted Himself to the human body while He was here, in many cases. Hebrews 2, verse 6 and 7, hard to explain in this amount of time I have this morning. I just preached on this actually uh, not too long ago. But one in a certain place testified saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. The humiliation of Christ then intensified during the week of the crucifixion. Comes time now for Jesus to go to the cross and do that which the Father had sent him to do. To complete the job. To complete the painting of who he really is. And during the week of the crucifixion, let me just first throw this out at you. He only lived to be 33 years of age. Luke chapter 3 and verse 23 said, And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. And if you follow that chronologically, you'll find Jesus was about 33 and a half years old, we believe, when he finally uh, went to the cross of Calvary. What are you trying to say? 33 years old? gone. I'm 53. Already outlived Jesus by 20 years. Did you know that being given length of days is a blessing in the Bible? It's talked about over and over in the Bible. It's talked about the Old Testament, reiterated in the verses that we all love our children to memorize first. Ephesians chapter 6, amen. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first command with promise that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Then people pray and get days as a blessing from God. And so what are you trying to say? Length of days is a blessing. Cutting off those days is a curse in the Bible. 33 years, gone. In his age, in the timing of his death, it's all part of the picture. He rode on a borrowed donkey. That's interesting. He made the animals. Amen? 
He had to borrow a donkey. Zechariah 9 in church, verse number 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Matthew 21, verse 6 and 7. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes and they sat him thereon. Man, I don't even have a decent car to ride around. I'm mad at God. Jesus had to borrow a donkey. Here's the, here's the kicker. Jesus rode in on his triumphal entry on a borrowed donkey. Even in the glory, the humiliation comes shining through. Even in the greatness of Christ, we see the humiliation of Christ. And then he borrowed an upper room during the Passover. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say in John 14 he's going to prepare a place for us? Isn't he the son of a carpenter? Learn those skills. He's a master craftsman. He's the one that crafted the whole universe. And he's going to prepare a place to receive us unto himself so we can be in the mansions. King James Bible, your other versions, you get a room or an apartment. I'm King James, so I get a mansion. Amen. But he's going to do that. And so this is the great craftsman. Ye shall say to the good men of the house, Luke 22, verse 11 and 12, The master saith unto thee, Where's the guest chamber? where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples. He shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. He borrowed a house while he was here to use when he needed it. And then he was betrayed with a kiss, the universal symbol of love. He was completely betrayed, the greatest betrayal in all of history. But he was betrayed for a slave's price. Listen to me very Carefully, Exodus 21, verse 32. If the ox shall push a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give unto their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So say my ox gets over into Brother Stewart's land, runs over one of his workers over there that's planting beans or whatever like that. And you know what I've got to do? First of all, my animal's got to be killed, but then I give him 30 shekels of silver. Okay? What are you trying to say? Because that slave he had working there, that, that servant, that lowly person who was bent over in the fields all day working, that person got run over by my animal. And so the price of a servant, the price of a slave, the price, price of a bond servant is 30 shekels of silver. That's what we find in Exodus. In Matthew 26, verse 14 and 15, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said to them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. So let's put both stories together. You got 30 pieces in one, right? For the servant, you'll take. You got 30 pieces over here, so you have 30 and 30. Then you have Jesus and a slave. Jesus and a servant. Jesus was worth the same as a lowly servant. That's all that was given for him. No more. The one that has the wealth in a thousand mines and a cattle on a thousand hills and owns everything. Just 30 pieces. Now you say, preacher, are you about to wrap this up? I could go on forever because I'm going to tell you what. It's right at this point in the story. And then comes the cross. The cross isn't all of it. And then comes the cross. So 33 years of utter abject humiliation. And it's crowned with a Roman cross. The whole thing ends up in the worst place you could ever end up. 
And let me just remind you, when they were crucified in the Old Testament, they most likely didn't have a little Catholic loincloth. It certainly wasn't an itty-bitty trickle of blood. And, 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 and you know, all of this, they paint Jesus like it was, and there's no wounds on him. There's no stripes on him. I want to tell you, he looked like a piece of hamburger. His guts were almost hanging out, and there were stripes that literally lacerated and cut his whole body open. Well, the prophet said his visage was so marred more than any man. And then he was tortured unmercifully. They took a crown of long thorns and poked it into his head and then beat it on top of the reed to drive down into his brow, the king of kings. They took that cat of nine tails and wrapped it around his body. The executioner showing all of his prowess and all of his muscle and might and then yanking it off with hunks of skin coming out. They took him and laid his hands down on one and pounded through his wrists onto that tree and did the same with his feet. They punched him with the clenched fist. They buffeted his face. Read Matthew chapter 27. It's all there. They bowed the knees and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They gambled for his clothing. They stripped his clothes off of him. And then they kicked him up the Calvary road with wounds and open sores. And they kicked him up the road and his wounds were no doubt all filled with dust and dirt and sand. And he hung on that cross and he looked just as bad as sin. Because he took in his body our sin. All the sins of the world were placed upon him as he's on the cross. Well man, I just didn't God know about all that? This is all a part of the story. And if you get the salvation, but to miss the whole story of who he is... Like, you know, it could have been somebody else that died on the cross and, you know, wasn't a savior. No, you have to understand who died on the cross and who he was. I think part of my problem is in my Christianity, I didn't really know Jesus for this. Because we all want to be so positive and we all love air-conditioned churches and padded pews and having all the blessings of God. But to come to know this, it cannot but change your life. Because if you're going to be authentic, and I think a lot of you really want to be authentic, I want to be real. I don't just want to act like a Christian in church. I want to go and have integrity of heart so God can look upon my heart and know that it is real. But I was missing this. So after he's tortured unmercifully, all of his followers, his disciples, they all denied him. <clears throat> Matthew 26 and verse 56 you believe your Bible? Then all his disciples forsook him and fled. So wait, let me get this straight. 33 and a half years, he's now at the lowest spot in his life according to worldly standards. He is being beaten. He is, be he is being you know, pierced. He's being pounded to a cross. He's being on the, on the torture stake. And they leave and run off without a word while he's in his lowest spot. And they abandon him. Preacher, I got in a real tough spot. My mama let me down. Might want to look at Jesus. Well, I had a dear friend and she just don't talk to me anymore. You might want to look at Jesus. God painted this picture so we would understand who He really is. John 18, verse 25, And Simon Peter stood and warned himself. They said, Therefore unto him art thou not also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I'm not. Long story short, the humiliation of Jesus Christ culminates in his burial in a borrowed tomb. 
stranger's tomb. Boy, that's against custom. That's against your desire. Well, my father died. I, I didn't understand the importance of this until my dad died about 10 years ago. And my dad used to like to walk out on the back porch there in Pennsylvania. We lived in a coal region on a mountain. You could see the other mountain. And he always used to say, you know, I, I, I just love that. I love the, the view. I'd never want to move from Pennsylvania. This is where I'm going to die. And I remembered when they buried my dad, <clears throat> they went way up to the top of the mountain to the last cemetery there in the corner. And, and when they buried him, I, I stood there after his funeral, everybody left. And I looked around and I thought, wow, you still got your view of the mountain there, dad. And then I realized, oh, hey, mom's going to be buried there too. And there's, there's my dad's brother, Victor, over there. He's a World War II vet. He's buried over there. And he's gathered unto his people. And that's Jewish custom. That's, that's Christian custom. And they buried face in the east for the resurrection. When the body of Jesus was taken down, there was no organized plan. There was no pre-planning. If anyone deserved an awesome burial, should not it have been Jesus? But He leaves this world the same way He comes in. In absolute humiliation. Here's a tomb over here. Let's put him over here. Joseph of Arimathea will let him use his. And he leaves this world in a borrowed tomb. All alone in a stranger's tomb. Would to God that you and I would understand some of who Jesus really is. Stop exerting yourself and thinking of yourself so highly and thinking you are so deserved of all the things that you want, and God can never give you any difficulty or allow any problems to come into your life. When you look at the Son of God and who He really was and the picture God painted and knowing that this was for us, all of those feelings begin to slip into the background. Because I am striving to be not like the Jesus that Hollywood created, but this is the Jesus of the New Testament. Came into this world humiliated, and left humiliated. I will go as far as to say this. If you know nothing of humiliation for the cause of Jesus Christ, you're not a very good Christian. If you're unwilling to bear any cross at all, if you're unwilling to have anybody think less of you because you love the Savior, you're not a very good Christian. When we begin to realize that we have to lose ourselves in Christ and humble ourselves, God will send revival in our hearts. Preacher, I studied this about 10, 12 years ago and just got on this perspective and couldn't get off it and it changed my life. And I pray that it does you to you as well. Father, I love you. I thank you, God.